<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. My guest today is Secretary Mike Pompeo, who served under President Donald Trump as both the director of the CIA from 2017 to 2018, and as the 70th United States Secretary of State from 2018 to 2021. Whether you agree or disagree with Secretary Pompeo politically, I believe his is a voice very well worth listening to. By the way, just to get it out there, I happen to agree with him on so many things. The world is a complex place and getting more complex by the day. These days, when so many of us are used to defending our own position and stuck in our own stance, shifting to a place where we try to see things from another point of view can feel almost painful. But how about giving it a try? I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with what Secretary Pompeo has to say. And for those of you who don't consider yourselves conservatives or Republicans, and however you want to label yourselves, who knows? You might just find you have some important things in common with him. By the way, if you listen to the whole thing, you'll hear his answer about the question whether or not he'll be running for president. Just don't fast forward. You'll miss some great insight from him along the way. This interview was recorded just before the Taliban took over Afghanistan with lightning speed, including taking control over Kabul. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Diplomat. Before I start the interview, I'd like to thank Secretary Pompeo for his tremendous leadership at the CIA and the State Department for his many decades of service to the United States of America. And there are three particular things I want to thank him for personally. First of all, the work that I did together with Jared Kushner, Ambassador David Friedman, Avi Berkowitz, and others on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Secretary Pompeo was so important and insightful to that. Uh, especially his input and support on the Abraham Accords. That work that he did was essential. And, of course, Secretary Pompeo, your very substantial support for our close friend and ally, the State of Israel. But what I'd like to do is bring us home. Uh, Bring us home because you speak frequently about a topic that's very, very important, about America exceptionalism, American exceptionalism. I think in today's society in America, that seems to be eroding. And I'd like to understand from you why you think that is and How do we fix that? How do we get people proud of the unique country that the United States of America is? First of all, thank you. It's great to be with you. Uh, Thanks for those kind words. Uh, Successes of the scale of the Abraham Accords have many hands. Uh, Yours were among them that were very, very important to making this happen. There were a whole bunch of us just building, working, and delivering for America and delivering for our friends in the Middle East, including our great friends and ally, uh, Israel. So it is the it was with the Lord's blessing that that all transpired, and I was proud to have been a, a small part of uh, facilitating that, that, that set of agreements between these uh, remarkable leaders. So good stuff. It'll benefit the Middle East and the world for an awfully long time to come. I'm convinced of that. You know, closer to home, your, your point about exceptionalism is, is very well taken. I, I believe this with all my heart. Our, our founding was, uh, was so important. It was historic, right? There's no nation that has this document that has now laid down and so successfully been executed upon. And yet we constantly spend our time 
trying to rewrite so many of us trying to spend our time rewriting history. I, I, I have a lot of theories on why, but that's less important than the question you asked, which is how. And the answer is to focus on the amazing work we do here at home for our own people. I, I spent my time four years in two roles, one as CI director and secretary of state. I, was, I, I watched around the world. They wanted their countries, our friends and allies to, to be more like American people from all across the world want to come and live here. We, we know that this is this exceptional place. We should not permit others to denigrate it. We should continue to build. We should find bridges across the political aisle in the places that we can and speak about policy, not personality in the places that we can't. And if we do those things, the Chinese efforts or the Russian efforts to denigrate America and to, to propagate the theory of the case that America is a country in decline, well, we won't let that happen and we won't let them talk about it that way. Let's move to Iran. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love my listeners to hear your thoughts on the Biden administration's efforts regarding a new variation, if you will, of the JCPOA, the drone and other recent ongoing attacks, including attacks on ships, what I'll call the Iranian occupation of Lebanon, not discussed much in the news at all, and of course the yeah. other proxies, and the last of which is their new president, Ibrahim Raisi was, was was responsible for the murder of thirty thousand Iranians in the late in the late nineteen eighties. Well, Jason, if I may, I'm going to take them in reverse order. Ibrahim uh, Raisi, the the soon to be uh, most senior leader in Iran, is my guess. He will likely replace the Ayatollah himself when the moment calls. Uh, is an evil human being responsible for the deaths of so many as you described inside of Iran. Massive human rights violator of a scale rivaled, frankly, only by Chairman Kim and Xi Jinping, who's now working on the same problem set in Western China. Uh, this is a, a bad actor. That, by the way, put in place by the Ayatollah himself, I think, as an indicator to this administration that they're not about, that the Iranian regime is not about to change its stripes. Indeed, if anything, it is going to double down on its malfeasance around the world. And so this is not a partner. This is not a friend. This is not someone with whom uh, the Israelis could ever contemplate cutting a deal uh, this is not someone who the Arab states can find a entente with, a, a way forward. This is a person who believes in Iranian hegemony, who is deeply anti-Semitic and wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and who believes that the United States itself is, in fact, the great Satan. So that's that's probably enough said about him, other than he, he will have his handprint on all the things you described, whether that's the Iranian complete collapse of the amazing people of Lebanon, whether that's the Iranian effort to use the Yemeni, the Houthi tribesmen, to launch missiles into Saudi Arabia, whether it's the Iranian efforts to uh, take commercial ships at sea and uh, capture them or cause them to have to veer from their route, uh, or the fact that they're holding Americans hostage inside of Iran. Those are all things Abraham Raisi would say. Raisi would say, those are good things. Those are a step forward. And so you now turn to this question, which is why on earth would American leaders be sitting in Vienna today having a conversation with them about a nuclear program to go back to the terms of a deal that was clearly a failed proposition. It is, uh, it's largely unexplainable to me. It is an article of faith, I think, on the left. That is, I, I describe an article of faith as something that one can't reason their way towards a conclusion with a sound set of assumptions. You have to, you have to come to believe that all this terror campaign around the world, all this anti-Semitism, all the destruction of the lives of their own people is acceptable if you can just delay their capacity to build up their nuclear program for a few months or a few years. 
Uh, of course, Jason, we had a different uh, approach, a radically different approach. We knew that this regime had to fundamentally change its ways. The only way to do that was to be cost imposing on them. We did that. We imposed a real cost. We were on the cusp, in my judgment, of causing the Iranians to have some incredibly difficult choices to make. And this administration immediately went in and transferred uh, that policy and now has released billions of dollars that were uh, held up. Uh, now is looking the other way as the Iranians ship uh, crude oil to China and is sitting at the table in Vienna about to cut a deal that will put American lives at risk. It is incomprehensible to me. Yeah. On the subject of evil, you played an important role in helping defeat ISIS. But ISIS is going to morph into other things. What should Americans know about ISIS and its progeny? Well, it's a really important topic given to the, uh, the news of the day in Afghanistan as well. I think what our administration did well and was is completely consistent with my long-held view on terrorism is this something we're going to have to continue to work at for an awfully long time. We're now, <laughs> James, we're now just a handful of days away from the 20th anniversary of uh, terrorists coming to our homeland and killing 3,000 people here in the United States of America. We've done good work and prayed and probably been a little bit lucky too and have managed to prevent that kind of major terror attack from coming to the United States again. But that doesn't mean the bad guys, the Islamic radicals, aren't intent on continuing to do that. We spoke about Iran. They're indeed the world's largest state sponsor of terror. Indeed, I would remind those folks that are listening to this or watching that Iran harbors the senior leadership of Al-Qaeda today, the very organization that launched the attack on the United States in New York, has its most senior leaders now sitting in Tehran, not in the mountains of Tora Bora, not, not in Pakistan, but in Tehran. And so Iran bears a double burden, its own terror and its support and complicity with the Al-Qaeda terror that presents a real threat to the United States. Jason, we're gonna have to stay at this. We need to stay at it with our military. We need to stay at it with our allies and friends. We need to do it with our intelligence services. We need to continue to build out that system, which is now in place. And we have great friends and partners helping us in Europe and in Asia, build out that, continue to build on the system that gives us a high degree of confidence that we can stop complex terror plots from harming us here in the United States. And then frankly, uh, the United States is gonna have to lead when we see someone who's uh, plotting against the West, certainly against America, we need to take real action. We did that. We saw Qasem Soleimani plotting against the United States of America. President Trump said, nope, we're not going to do that. And Qasem Soleimani will never kill another American. We need to be that vigilant, that serious, and that determined if we're going to take down ISIS and everything that flows from it afterwards. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. My father-in-law was born in Cuba, loves Cuba, proud Cuban, uh, came here when he was a teenager. And we're seeing some potentially a, potentially a glimmer of hope with the protests pretty recently, although the news team to have stopped covering it. What's your advice to the Biden administration about what's happening in Cuba now? Well, Jason, I, it's, I didn't know your father-in-law had it, that close a relationship. It's a, it's a powerful story of people just yearning to uh, be more like us and to have a little bit of freedom in their lives from the communist tyranny that they suffer under and the socialist economy that has destroyed their lives. You know, to the Biden administration, their first mistake is it took them, it took them 72 hours to say that communism was bad. <laughs> and then the president had to read it from a three by five card. We, we would have within seconds acknowledged the Cuban people right to freedom, done all that we could to support them. We have a number of tools 
one of the last things we did was to acknowledge, uh, I say, I've often said uh, designate, but we acknowledge that these are terrorists in Cuba, that these are narco traffickers. This is a, this is a thug, thuggish regime. We held them responsible for that accountable. Their wives couldn't travel to Spain to shop. Their kids couldn't go study any place in the world without being at risk. We, we took seriously the obligation to put pressure on the Cuban leadership in a way that would provide as much support to the Cuban people as we possibly could. I, I hope they'll get the internet open. Looks like the Senate passed legislation last night. I hope the House will buy off on it too. That'll require that. There are lots of tools that we could use to put even more pressure on the regime. And ultimately that combination of pressure and the Cuban people's desire for freedom and a strong America standing alongside of those people, I think can give the Cuban people that, that break that they need to shake off the terrible tyranny they've been suffering under for all of these decades. Let's uh, tackle a, a complicated, challenging topic. China, whether we want to talk about the Uyghurs, with, which shockingly so little is said about the suffering of the Uyghurs, the hard lessons learned during COVID about our reliance on China for manufacturing and other things that the United States needs so essentially in times of crisis, Hong Kong, Taiwan, trade, you name it, you talk about it as you wish. Boy, it's hard to know where to start other than to begin with the central understanding that the Chinese Communist Party's ideology, certainly under the leadership of General Secretary Xi Jinping, their ideology demands that they continue to expand their footprint and their desire for global hegemony is real and they have every intention of achieving that. The timeline remains uncertain for them but they now believe they can go faster than they otherwise thought. So they not only have the intent, but they are a country with enormous capability, not just their 1.4 billion people, but an enormous GDP, a big economy, a very powerful military nuclear program that is now of uh, geostrategic importance, a, a missile program that launched more missile tests in 2020 than the rest of the world combined. So a very capable threat. If you add to that, Jason, the work that they're doing here inside the United States, it's a Chinese organization, they call it their United Front Department. You and I would know it as the Propaganda and Information Warfare Team. <laughs> These are people who are working diligently in our schools. They're working on our governors and county commissioners. They are working all across to denigrate the United States, to stir up trouble inside the United States and to forward the story that America is in decline and China is on the rise. And the only thing we can do is cut the best deal we possibly can with China. I don't believe that for a second, but it's going to take real American leadership. I, I don't know how much time we have to spend on it, but it's going to take real American leadership to confront them on artificial intelligence, the semiconductor manufacturing industry, uh, their economic warfare they're engaged in not only against the United States, but against our friends and allies. And it's going to take an enormous coalition of countries, countries like India, Japan, Australia, South Korea, all of the Southeast Asian countries who band together and use their economic power to demand that China cease acting around the globe in the way that it has for these last five or 10 years. We, we, we have to confront this. If we don't, we will live in an America that looks an awful lot different from the one that you and I have had the blessings to grow up in. Indeed. Let's bring it a bit closer to home. In a recent interview relating to Dr. Fauci, you said, my wife and I always taught our son, you tell the whole truth, you don't quibble, which by the way is something I always tell my kids. <laughs> and then you continued, 
He is at best playing some sophisticated word games for his elitist doctor buddies. I don't know the purpose of it, but it's dangerous. COVID is confusing, challenging, and everything, and we all thought we were sort of uh, past the end of the tunnel at this point, but now we're not sure. What's your message to Americans about COVID today and the Delta variant? Let's start with this. Get every bit of information you can. I've chosen to become vaccinated, so, so is my wife, so is my son. Uh, we think it protects us from the worst outcomes of the COVID virus. Uh, but every parent should get to make that decision for their kids and, and frankly, for themselves as well. Uh, and then just use good old fashioned smarts and common sense. As for the bigger set of issues, the, the how do we get here set of issues. You know, this came from Wuhan. There's a debate about whether it originated in a lab or not. I, I, I'm pretty confident it came from the laboratory, but put that aside for the moment. It came from Wuhan, China. It came from Wuhan, China, because when the Chinese saw that they had a highly contagious, relatively lethal virus, they chose to put thousands of their own citizens on airplanes and transit them to places like Milan, Italy, and spread it across the world. Now, the result, millions of dead, billions of dollars in lost wealth, lives changed forever, not just in the United States, but all across the world. No country should be able to get away with what they did. Put, put, put aside the fact that the, the virus may have occurred naturally. I'll give them that for the moment. Fine. They, they knew what they had. They covered it up and they foisted this virus upon the world. That is, that is reckless, gross negligence. This is something that no nation should be permitted to do. The, the result of that reckless, gross negligence was millions of people that are no longer with us. We have to hold the world accountable. If we don't do that, the Chinese accountable. If we don't hold the Chinese accountable, Jason, here's the upshot. First, that lab's still open. So the Chinese are continuing to conduct viral research in that laboratory. And we know that that laboratory is unsafe. So you have to change the Chinese Communist Party's operational motive or operational mode because they believe they got away with this. They think that the world sees them as the people who sent PPE and masks around the world. No, the, the solution to the Wuhan virus are American-made vaccines. The problem set is a Chinese-made virus that was foisted upon the world. And so our leaders have to confront this. It can't be that we can just go, oh, gosh darn it, we're going to put people in masks for another six months and get on with our lives. We have to prevent this kind of pandemic from happening again. We know the most likely place that it will come from if it were to happen again. And we have to impose whatever costs, massive costs on the Chinese Communist Party until it conforms to the basic requirements of securing its own country from being an enabler of these viruses to transit all around the globe. In my time, in my three years at the White House, I was very fortunate that although I disagreed sometimes, perhaps often with my colleagues at State, NSC, and even the CIA from time to time, I was fortunate in that we always got to the right result. After a lot of negotiation, we agreed on a path forward on these complex issues that relate to the Middle East. But one of the questions I get asked often, and I can think of no better person to actually answer it is, is there such a thing as the deep state? Yeah, um, I think the answer to that is, call it what you will, but there is a deeply entrenched, uh, long-standing foreign policy consensus that is driven through a bureaucracy that is run by uh, three unions, and which is not akin to, uh, not, not, not comfortable taking the kinds of action, Jason, that you and I and the president, Jared, and the whole gang were working on in the Middle East, right? We were upending 
40 years, 50 years of American policy in the Middle East, where we had as the central thesis, you know, send the Secretary of State on an airplane between Tel Aviv and uh, the West Bank, just fly back and forth to Ramallah, and maybe you can draw a map that someone will sign off on in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank. We knew this was folly. Uh, we'd seen folks try this before. And so you have a bureaucracy at the State Department, and you see it coming back to life, right, Jason? Today, I learned that they're thinking about reopening the consulate in Jerusalem, right? Something that we, we closed down because we moved the embassy to the rightful capital of Israel. Uh, they're going to open the consulate. I, frankly, I think it's illegal, but apart from that, it's a bad idea. Don't need a consulate there to deal with the issues that provide our ally and friend security in Israel. Uh, but yeah, that that resistance to change, the resistance to trying new things, the resistance to a model that is different than the one that they've been working on and uh, trying to deliver on for 50 years is real. You saw it. Uh, we all suffered from it. We had to bang our way through it. Uh, by the way, it's not just in the American State Department, it's in uh, the foreign policy establishments in every major country in Europe. Uh, the same is true for Asia. These are career people who have, right, they've already laid out their theory of the case. And when someone comes along and says, hey, we have a different way we want to approach this, it is a nightmare to get them to release their ability. And they did a lot to try and undermine what it was you and I and President Trump were trying to do. So on that note, and you, you address this sort of each country has their version of this, but there's also this international thing, this international law, international consensus. Uh, I want to specifically address the Pompeo Doctrine, where you made a tremendously important statement about how what some people call settlements, what I call towns, cities, and neighborhoods are not illegal <laughs> per se. How do you um, explain to everybody that really this Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not going to be resolved by what people pretend are a, a, a substantial set of rules that exist on this conflict. So we were blessed, Jason, that we worked for a president that gave us a lot of room to go just look at things as they are, the true reality. I, I talk about North Korea, uh, the work we did with uh, the people of Taiwan are all places, but the Middle East maybe presents the most clear case. Your, your point's well taken. Uh, I heard this called the Pompeo Doctrine. But it was a simple idea that refuted what uh, Secretary Kerry and those who'd come before had, which is that any place that Israel has its citizens that is outside of some border, that 67 border or some, or just some, right, is somehow uh, apartheid or an occupying force. N nothing could be further from the truth. I, I don't have time. You could probably recount it better than me, but we've, we've now all learned the history of these places. These are neighborhoods and towns and communities and, and small cities where Israelis rightly lived. And so my purpose was to just lay down for America's State Department so that my team would know that these were lawfully occupied places, uh, excuse me, lawfully lived in places by Israeli citizens. Uh, they weren't retaking some land from someone else. These were places that rightfully belonged to the nation of Israel. And so we created clarity around that. I think it helped uh, these Israelis. I think it helped also usher in an idea that this is the reality on the ground uh, when ultimately the Palestinians, the folks that live in the West Bank come to an agreement. These are the terms that the agreement is gonna have to be made on because this is simply the reality. That's certainly true for not only uh, those places there in Judea and Samaria, but the Golan Heights as well. These were these were simple statements of widely acknowledged facts on the ground. And it was it just took a, a president and a team that were prepared to make the hard truths known 
and then to provide support to Israel so those hard truths could be realized. I have always been a strong Israel supporter, but I've known to, um, I've grown to love the region, all of Israel's Arab neighbors who were so essential in finally establishing the Abraham Accords, whether they signed it already or hopefully one day will sign it. I think this area, this region, has so much promise ahead of it. Where do you stand on the Middle East and are you bullish on it? I am bullish. I think the the next generation of leadership there can see that the path forward doesn't consist of a foreign policy that begins with the uh, destruction of the state of Israel. <laughs> that was that was your that was your daddy's Middle East policy <laughs> or your granddad's. I think this next generation can see that the problem child in the region is the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the solution to this is working alongside a great democratic partner, the state of Israel. So I think. I think while there's there will certainly be turmoil, and frankly, if America is not prepared to defend and support Israel, that turmoil will be greater. We saw that right now, weeks after the Trump administration ended, Iranian rockets landing in Israel being flown by Hamas terrorists out of the Gaza Strip. I think if America will lead and provide support to these Gulf state Arab allies, then we can make the Middle East a much more secure and much more prosperous place. The Abraham Accords are evidence of that. And I think the people in this region have grown tired of the old, uh, the old rules, the things that were just taken for granted as factual, and appreciate the fact that the Middle East can move forward if it will just move off of some of those, those shop-worn old shibboleths that no longer make sense for them. Last question. Religion is very important to me. I'm an observant Jew, and I've been extraordinarily fortunate with uh, President Trump always being supportive both pre the White House, during the White House. And even uh, my Arab interlocutors have always been extremely respectful of me being an observant Jew. Religion is important to you as well. What's your message to those of faith, both here in America and around the world, uh, as faith sometimes comes under attack? You have such an important voice when it comes to faith. So we all understood that religious freedom mattered, that the ability of me to practice my faith as an evangelical Christian and yours as an observant Jew mattered morally, mattered individually, but mattered to nations as well. The countries were stronger if they allowed people to practice their faith. So my message would be uh, allow wide open faith practices in your country. It's not a threat. It won't undermine your political stability. Indeed, just the opposite. People will be more prosperous. They'll be more secure. Uh, second, uh, faith, faith matters to leaders around the world. They want to see leaders who have a faith, who are committed and disciplined in that. I saw this, whether I went to uh, to Israel or to uh, Muslim nations, they all they, they would understand. That they appreciated the fact that I was a person of faith and was open about that, and it was important to me that discipline. Uh, I think as America leads in that way, as as America demonstrates our heritage, our Ju- Judeo-Christian heritage, and our tolerance for people of every faith, including those who choose to practice no faith, they will see that that is a model that creates less risk, less internal security threats to them, not more. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Last question. I know I said that was the last question, but <laughs> people want to know, will you be running for president? Oh, goodness. Only to back to faith, maybe. Only the Lord knows the answer to that question. What I do know, Jason, is for people like you and me, these issues aren't about politics. These issues are about things that are deeply held beliefs of ours. The reason we engaged and took some part of our life to go serve in public was so that we could further these causes we cared about. I I have every intention of staying in these very same debates, these very same fights, because they matter an awful lot to how my son, and someday I hope we'll have grandchildren, how these next generations here in America 
I can have the same set of opportunities that you and I did. So whether that's running for elected office again or uh, in another space, I, I can't answer that, but I promise you I will continue to stay in this fight on these important issues. Well, thank you, Secretary Pompeo, for being in the fight, for continuing to stay in the fight, and for sharing your wisdom. Really, really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Jason. So long. I wish I had more time with Secretary Pompeo, but we did get to cover a lot of ground. He speaks with deep knowledge about many of the important issues of the day and with humility. We had a chance to discuss American exceptionalism and got to travel around the globe to speak about Iran, Cuba, the Middle East, China, and other important areas and topics. One important reminder for me that I hope people take to heart is to remember that we need to look at things as they are and then try to work on change. We can't ignore reality in our quest to make the world a better place. We may not agree with each other, but we should respectfully listen to each other and work together where we can for everyone's benefit. The debate on these important topics matter. We need dedicated people in the game helping on these important issues, and I thank Secretary Pompeo for staying in the debate. Thanks for listening, and I hope to catch you again on the next episode of The Diplomat. Brought to you by Newsweek.